If you read through the four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus in our New Testament, you'll discover that there are over 40 of those stories or parables uh, that Jesus told. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know some of the most popular and best known ones. And it would be hard to choose what is the most popular or best known of all the parables. Some of us might say, the wonderful story of the prodigal son is my favourite. Or you might say, how about the Good Samaritan? That was a wonderful story as well. Or what about the one about the talents? Or the great wedding banquet? But if you took a vote on the least known, the least popular, and probably the least preached on, I'm pretty sure what the answer would be. So for those who are unfamiliar with it, need to be reminded of it, Here is this parable, and I want to begin with it, then conclude with it. I'm just going to read it. Listen carefully. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, when he was in torment, He looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here And you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now those are sobering words. And although we may not be very familiar with them, It's pretty clear to me that James, the author of this little letter, the half-brother of Jesus, was very familiar with them. And there are echoes throughout this letter, as we've seen, of the teaching of Jesus. And I believe of this particular story. As James draws his letter to a close, he begins to focus on the future. He's focusing on the fact that Christ is coming again a second time. And he will return this time as judge of all. And his verdict on our lives, on each one of us here, will mean either heaven or hell. Depending on whether in the words of the title we've chosen from this series, whether we have a faith that works. A faith that is seen in the way that we live. That has some evidence to back it up. And so as we come to this final chapter, and the first half of the chapter, our focus today, 
James addresses, I believe, two contrasting groups of people in these verses. And two contrasting, what I want to call, judgment calls. And you'll find them in James 5, 1 to 12. So look with me at what it says. And as we do so, it'll be interesting to take a vote, which we won't do, and say, do you think you're addressed in verses 1 to 6? Or in verses 7 to 12? Maybe by the end of this service, you might have a different answer. So, look first of all at the first judgment call. You'll see in verses 1 to 6, there is a call to weep and to wail. Very strong words. The actual Greek word is one of those words that sounds like it is. Olulu. If you've lived in Africa, I'm sure they have it in Malawi, when people die, the women ululate. Oh, I know, try and do it, because I'm just a woman. Don't do it. But it sounds expressive. This call then, look carefully, is a message to rich people and James tells them two things quite clearly. He says, listen, verses 1 to 3, now listen. And then he tells them to look in verses 4 to 6. I was tempted to call this, stop, look, listen. But at the end of looking and listening, they need to stop. So look at the first three verses, the listen bit. James says, listen to the reality of God's judgment, the misery that is coming upon you. He says, this misery will come upon you when Christ returns and God's judgment falls. For you will then discover that what you most valued in this life will prove to be worthless. What you've placed your confidence in will prove to be false. When James wrote this, People's wealth was calculated or, or estimated in terms of three things. Food, clothing, precious metals. And at least two, possibly three, are included in these verses. First of all, James tells these people, your wealth has rotted. The word rotted is particularly used of food that falls apart because of putrefaction. You know, we just moved house and uh, the, the, the movers came and took our, our freezer. They put it in the garage. They moved it. We let all the food in, put it in. We plugged it in, switched on the switch. I came a day later and it wasn't very pleasant. The freezer had broken down and all the food is already beginning to go off. Don't worry, we've packed it away and the, the removers, not the removers, but the dustbin man is going to take it away. But it's not a pleasant thing when food goes off. And these people live for expensive foods, for big banquets, which they alone could afford and enjoy. Secondly, he says, your clothing has become moth-eaten. If you know the Old Testament part of the Bible, you may not have noticed this, but, but when people gave gifts, they often gave you as a gift a set of clothes. And if you really wanted to be impressive, you gave ten sets of raiment, the old versions used to say. The suits of clothes. Now these rich people, they had wardrobes full of expensive clothes. But James says they're moth-eaten. And finally he talks about gold and silver and he says your gold and silver have corroded. Now of course you may say, what's he talking about? Gold and silver can't corrode. That's why they're precious metals, but that's the point. When you come to judgment day, they'll be worthless. 
as worthless as rusty metal. Now, notice something also very interesting. He uses what's technically called the perfect, like the past tense. He says, has rotted, have eaten, are corroded. It's used in the prophets particularly to describe a future event that's not happened, but is so certain that you can write about it as though it already has happened. He says, there's no doubt about this. This will be what will actually happen. And on the day of judgment, he says, your misplaced values, what you have lived for, will be tested like metal and shown to be corroded. It will be held up before you as evidence for the prosecution. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. The image of fire is one that was commonly used, not least by Jesus, in connection with hell, with hell fire. And that is the rich judgment, these, this is the judgment that these rich people face. But why? What is James saying? Is he saying it's wrong to be rich? If you're sitting there and you've got a stack in the bank, is James saying, gosh, you're facing judgment? Not necessarily. Nowhere in the Bible or the teaching of Jesus is wealth in of itself condemned. No, the real issue, what is condemned, is not wealth, but the misuse of wealth. Look what James accuses them of. He says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. The word hoarded is literally treasured. The authorised version translates it, you have heaped treasure together. That is, he says, you've stockpiled riches far beyond anything you need. Do you remember some years ago, uh, I think it was when the European community first started, there was a lot of complaint about the fact that farmers were growing grain and food and it was being stockpiled and nobody was using it. You remember the butter mountains? And you imagine these mountains of butter and there were starving people throughout the world and yet we'd got all this food stockpiling. That's the kind of images using here. But he says it with an added dimension. He says, you've done this, not only that, you've done it in the last days. Some people think that James, and we'll see why in a moment, James is clearly writing to people who are Jewish. And he may well have written just before the fall of Jerusalem. In AD 70, the city of Jerusalem fell to the Roman general Titus. He, his armies came in and they raised the place to the ground. And who did they go for first? All the rich people, all their valuables were either stolen or destroyed. And James says, you've stockpiled all this stuff and it's absolutely of no use whatsoever. But the phrase the last days is usually used in the New Testament to describe the period between the first and second coming of Jesus. In that sense, for the last 2,000 years, we have all been living in the last days. The final period of God's plan of history. And what James is saying is, if this is the case, if these are the last days, if Christ is coming again and all that you've accumulated will prove to be worthless, what a tragedy it will be and you'll be judged by God for it. Now let me say something quite clearly. While it may be sensible to make provision for the future, for our families, I believe it's a sin to leave money behind, lying in the bank, which could be invested in the work of God's kingdom. Remember the parable Jesus told, the other parable I've mentioned, the talents, the man who just buried it in the ground. You can be using it to further God's kingdom. Um, in his book on James, which I've recommended several times, John Blanchard, the evangelist, it's called Truth for Life, 
He speculates, and you may say, well, this is kind of speculation, but I, I was touched by it. This is what he says. He says, imagine that lovely moment. After death, you're a Christian. And someone comes up to you and says, welcome to heaven. I have some wonderful news for you. Do you remember that gift that you sent regularly to that missionary society? Well, I was converted through the preaching of a missionary who would not have been in my part of the world if you had not given your gifts. You sent him out to preach the gospel and I'm in heaven as a result. And I simply say, if you have resources, invest them in God's kingdom. But imagine hoarding them, James says, and who benefits? Well, distant relatives and lawyers. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Remember what Jesus said. He said, you've got a choice in life to make. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't do it. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, wealth is a very dangerous thing. It's so attractive. In a moment we'll think about who these people specifically are that he's addressing in these opening verses, but there's a warning for all of us here. You don't have to have a lot of money to love money. Say it again. You don't have to have a lot of money to love money. Remember what Paul wrote to his young colleague, Timothy. He issues a warning to him and to all Christians. This is 1 Timothy 6. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Here's a verse that's always misquoted. Money is the root of all evil. No, says Paul, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I simply ask you, and I don't know hardly any of your financial circumstances, thankfully, but I do know the lure and attraction of riches. Is there someone here this morning who's a Christian and you've lived for money and the accumulation of wealth and, like Paul says here, you've wandered from the faith and it's brought you misery. You need to get back on track. So James says to these people and to people like us, if we fall into this category, listen to the reality of God's judgment, the misery is coming upon you. But then he goes further, he says, look at the reasons for God's judgment. Not only have they hoarded up wealth for themselves, failing to use it for the good of others, these rich people are guilty of something far, far worse. The pitiless exploitation of other people. He says, you fail to pay the wages of your workmen. See, these... These large landowners had big estates and they lived for agriculture and farming and they employed day labourers. And these day labourers weren't wealthy. They lived literally from hand to mouth and so it was vital that they needed to be paid at the end of every day's work so they could get enough food to eat. That's the background to the prayer that we so often pray and don't quite understand. Give us each day our daily bread. We need enough for one day. But these rich people have failed to pay the wages of their workmen. The law of Moses, given to God's people Israel, specifically 
speaks out against this. Deuteronomy 24. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he's a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. You know, don't take it out on people from other communities. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor. He's counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you'll be guilty of sin. And why did they withhold these wages? Was it that they had a cash flow problem? Not at all, says James. You fail to pay the wages of your workmen while living in luxury and self-indulgence. They were getting fatter while their workers were getting thinner, even dying of starvation. James goes on, he doesn't mince his words. He says, when you do this, you are guilty of murder. Of innocent people who put up no resistance, resulting in the condemnation and murder of innocent people. You have condemned and murdered innocent people who were not opposing you. The phrase is literally the murder of the innocent. Maybe echoes of Jesus, the only truly innocent one. But of all people throughout the world who suffer today, and this is echoed in many parts of the world. I've lived in Asia and Africa, and you find this thing, kind of thing happening in many parts of the world where the rich exploit the poor. And what James says is, if you're in this category, you may not receive earthly justice. And he's saying to these rich people, you may think you've got away with it. But divine justice is assured. As the law of Moses warned, these people cry out to the Lord, and the Lord Almighty hears. Verse 4, look the wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. The word the Lord Almighty is a particularly Jewish phrase, which is why we think he's writing to Jewish people who'd understand it. The word is literally the Lord Sabaoth, which means the Lord of the heavenly armies. And he hears the cries of his people. And he will come and execute justice. The perpetrators will be punished. And he uses a very graphic picture to describe it. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary, James Alec Mateer writes, of these rich people, they are like so many unthinking beasts, luxuriating in their rich pastures day after day, growing fat by the hour, careless of the fact that each hour, each day, brings the butcher and the abattoir nearer. They're like Christmas turkeys being fattened for the feast. Now, no wonder James then calls on these people to weep and to wail. And as I read this, I thought to myself, how reluctant we are to picture God's judgment in those terms. How we sort of downplay it. It's a serious issue. God takes sin seriously. But we need to ask a question, who exactly is he writing to here? There are some people who think James is writing, literally, in a church like Charlotte Chapel, well, not like Charlotte Chapel, I don't think anyway, but in a church, a congregation, that there are actually some of these people sitting next to other people who they're ripping off every week by not paying their wages. I rather doubt that he's writing that. I think like an Old Testament prophet, Hebrew prophet, he is, he is denouncing the system in which these people lived and the people are responsible for it. And this seems to be confirmed as we look at the second call, judgment call here. Notice the second half of them as we come to verses 7 to 12, which is a call to patience and perseverance. 
This is a message to suffering Christians. Look at verse 7. He says, after saying all this, he says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And then verse 10 he says, Brothers, as an example of patience, in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What I think James is saying is that these Christians he is writing to are the ones who are being exploited. They're the workers who aren't getting their wages. And he's saying to them, if you're on the receiving end of this, how should you respond? And he uses two words. He says, respond with patience and with perseverance. And again, he uses the same word. It doesn't come out in our translation. But the word see in verse 4, in verse 7, be patient then, see the farmer, is the same word translated look earlier on. So here's another look and listen to these people. He says, first of all, look at the example of the farmer. What he stresses here is the need for patience. If you're a farmer, he says you've got to be patient. The word literally in Greek means long-tempered. And that expression is the opposite of short-tempered. We don't normally say long-tempered, but that's what he's trying to say here. Another commentator, uh, Professor Tasker writes, the word denotes not so much the brave endurance of afflictions, the refusal to give way before them, even when under pressure, as the self-restraint which enables the sufferer to re- refrain from hasty retaliation. You see, if you're on the end of this kind of thing, you imagine what your reaction might be. I need justice and now. And James says, hang on a minute. Think of the farmer. Look around you. You you know this because you're working in his fields. The farmer waits patiently for the rains. Uh, In that part of the world, there's many parts of the world today, there are early spring rains after which you sow the crop and then there are the late rains which bring the crop uh, to fruition, to full potential. So the farmer waits for the rains, he waits for the crop and he says you can't rush these kind of things. Patience is essential. And he says, if you're a Christian, you are to wait patiently. Not for the rain, which is even then a bit unpredictable, many parts of the world. He says, wait for the Lord's coming, which is certain. Uh, There are quite a few words used in the New Testament to describe the second coming of Christ. This is a lovely word. It's the word used of the arrival, or literally the appearance, of a special dignitary. Like a king suddenly appears on stage, or in the streets of the city in a big chariot or in those days maybe on a big horse and this is called the parousia, the coming, the appearing. So he says the suffering Christian waits patiently for the Lord's coming and for the Lord's justice. And he says, then he adds a little thing, he says, and while you're at it, when you're suffering like this and waiting for the Lord's coming, don't do what we so often do, start taking out on one another. You notice he says that? He says, and don't grumble against each other, or God will judge you. The judge is standing at the door. So James tells him, here's the first thing, patience. He says, see, look at the farmer, an example from from nature. But his readers would also be familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, what God has said in his word. And so he turns then to some other examples from Scripture, as he says, you have heard, verse 11. So then not only to look to the example of the farmer, but to listen to the stories of godly sufferers. Once again, he stresses the need for patience. He says, think of the example of the prophets. 
Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. See, if you're a prophet, your job description always included persecution. Prophet, persecution. And therefore, you needed a third P, you needed patience. And he served on the mount. Again, Jesus spoke about this to his followers, to people like us. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. And perhaps James is thinking about this as he moves on then to a second thing, the need for perseverance. The word perseverance is a slightly different word. Again, the literal meaning is to stay on in the same place, not to be moved from where you are. Look at verse 11. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. We often refer to the patience of Job. Not strictly true, because Job wasn't very patient, certainly with his friends, and he wasn't very patient with the Lord either. But he was persevering. He didn't move in his faith. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And that faith, says James, was ultimately rewarded. Finally brought about a reversal in his fortunes. And he says, we can be assured of this, that God is a God of justice. He will bring about finally vindication if we persevere. And he adds this lovely phrase in the midst of all this judgment. He says, what's the Lord like? The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Full of compassion and mercy. What a promise to each one of us here. Maybe going through difficult times. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Then again, like he did in the previous section when he talked about grumbling, we've seen in this letter how many times he refers to sins of the tongue. Things that we say. Then he adds in verse 12. Some people aren't sure if verse 12 belongs here in the next section. He suddenly says, issues a warning about judgment to Christians again. Above all, my brothers, don't swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you'll be condemned. The reference, of course, is not to profane language, which is spoken against. It's to do with swearing oaths. Um, again, Jesus spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, among the Jews there was a kind of tradition uh, that you could say something, and as long as you swore something but didn't use God's name, you were let off the hook if you didn't do it. A bit like that game Simon Says, you know where you say it, and if you don't say Simon Says, you don't do it, you know. And they would say, I swear by heaven, I swear by the temple, I swear by my beard, or whatever it was. And then you say, but you swore, you promised, and they said, ah, but they didn't use God's name. What James is saying here is, in the midst of all this suffering, be people of integrity. Your word should be your bond. If you say it, just say it and do it. Let your yes be yes, your no, no, as though there were legal witnesses and lawyers signing the document at the end of it. So this is the second judgment call. We're almost coming to an end, but stay with me. A call to Christians to be patient and to persevere in the face of suffering, and exploitation. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? I would doubt that any of us are in exactly this same situation, though some of us from overseas may have family who are. And exploitative employers are not unknown in our society, are they? And they may not do exactly this. 
But there is an issue for every Christian here. Apostle Paul reminded Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I assume when he says everyone, he means everyone. Everyone who's a follower of Christ. If you're a Christian, I don't mean go out of your way to be unpopular. If you're living a godly life in our society, which is increasingly ungodly, you will not be the most popular person in your college class. You will not be the most popular person as the CEO you've discovered in Edinburgh. You will not be the most popular person in your workplace when you stand up for truth. You will be discriminated against. And I believe in our nation we're going to find it increasingly hostile to Christian faith. So how do you react into those circumstances? Maybe you're facing that at the present time in your work situation. The question is, am I patient? Am I long-tempered? Or do I react angrily? Or do I keep my mouth closed, but when I get to church, I take it out on my fellow Christians and start grumbling? Am I persevering? Holding on to my faith in Christ? Not abandoning my integrity? Remember that help is always at hand. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. There is a future vindication which is assured and as John Brand shared with us the other week, if you're on the mission Sunday, God's judgment, his ultimate justice of right and wrong, should fill us with great hope and encouragement. Because there are people who live and die having exploited people, live ruthless lives, murdered people. And to all accounts, they go through this life and they die, and it looks like they've got away with it. They die of old age in their beds. And unless there is any ultimate justice... Well, you may as well look out for yourself and do what you can, like they're doing. If you can't beat them, join them. But if you believe in the Lord's coming, then you will live a different kind of life. A life marked by patience, perseverance. So, almost here with the conclusion. Two judgment calls, a call to weep and wail, because the Lord's coming means condemnation for you. A call to patience and perseverance because the coming of Christ will bring vindication. Now, the important point is how you respond to this today. Because the parable with which we began tells us something awful. It says, when you're dead, you can't change it. Your ultimate destiny is decided in this life. Do you respond with a faith that works? So let me finish by reading the end of the parable that we began with. It's in Luke 16, if you want to read it when you get home. You remember the request of the rich man, send Lazarus to help me. What did Abraham reply? Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and anyone cannot, no one can cross from there to us. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house. I've got five brothers. 
Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of judgment and torment. Notice Abraham's reply. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. What God has already said. Let them listen to him. No, 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 Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And I simply close by saying, and I've said close three times, and this really is close, but it's very important. We have all the necessary evidence to determine our ultimate destiny. Someone has died, so you need not go to hell. And someone has risen from the dead, so that you might have eternal life. This is the gospel. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I simply say to you, make your choice. Best known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, hell, but will have everlasting life, heaven. The question is, do I believe? Have I believed? Have I put my trust in the one who died for me? rose again. There'll be no one else to blame for your ultimate destiny. If you were sitting in Charlotte Chapel this morning, this is the gospel. Good news. Save sinners from hell. Brings them to heaven. Let's pray together.